Well, we're going to take a little break from the book of Acts today. And I, I was praying on, on last week about the sermon, and God kept telling me to look at uh, Psalm 63. Now, I, had, I have preached on that a, a few times, and I hate going back. I don't want to redo something I've already done. In fact, I, I heard, I think Charles Stanley says that every seven years he throws out all of his sermons because he doesn't want to go back and preach them again. You don't want to, he called them warm river biscuits. So, so I actually threw, I don't have any of my notes anymore. I did toss them out a while ago. And so this is all, all fresh and new for me. And as I was studying, it was all things I hadn't found before. You ever do that? You ever read something that you've read and read and read and you read it again? It's like, wow, I never saw that. And it's exactly what this was. So we're going to dig right in. Psalm 63, verse 1. It's actually the heading of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David regarding a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, I've mentioned before in various sermons that we always need to find out the circumstances of whatever was written. Why was it written? Who did it? What was going on? We used to call it due diligence. We should know the occasion of the writing because it matters you know, what's going on in that person's life, what's going on around them at that time, because it matters the context of what they were writing. So the first verse tells us basically all of it. Obviously, David wrote it. He wrote it when he was on the run. Uh, most commentaries believe that this was when Absalom rebelled and had chased him out of town. Verse 11 tells us that he was, he was a king, so it was already, it wasn't Saul chasing him. It had to be Absalom chasing him out of town. Verse 11 says, but the king will rejoice in God. So it's not Saul's chasing, it's Absalom's chasing. So we, we wonder what's going through David's mind at this point. Imagine this. Your son, whom you love, wants to kill you. you imagine what's going through his mind? Your own child wants you dead. How bad of a parent do you have to be? that your child wants to kill you. I'm not sure about you, but I, I'd begin to feel sorry for myself. Start blaming myself for all my bad parental decisions. I might sit back and regret, wallow in self-pity and shame, figuring it's my fault that he's like this. And the enemy wants nothing more than to allow you to wallow in pity, self-guilt, and regret for past decisions. Our, our class on Wednesday has been talking about, well, last Wednesday's class was knowing about God that has forgiven your past. You can't go back and change anything you've done. So you can't spend time wishing things would be different. The title that we talked about last week was You Believe in God, But You're Ashamed of Your Past. And the second title, the second chapter was you believe in God, but you're not sure that God loves you. Both of these chapters focus on the fact that we are not our sins. Our sins do not define who we are. David could have focused easily on all these bad choices he made in his past and just stop right there and just taking the blame, taking the guilt and the shame and just Take me, Lord. But he didn't. He can't change the past, but he can actually focus on what God wants to do for the future. He turns his focus upon God, who can change the trajectory of your life. 
He can change your future. We asked in our, in our class this morning with the kids, um, Jake asked, he said, I wish I could see all of my life from here to the very end to see all the things I'm going to do so I can know what things to change. I said, well, if, if that's your life, probably you're not going to change anything. And the result of change would make you somebody different than you already are. But the point is, we don't know what our future is going to be. In fact, our future is not written for us yet. Our past is written, and we can't change it. But we know that God can change what our future is going to be. So instead of focusing on his past, he focuses on what God wants to do for him in the future. In verse 1, he says, oh God, you are my God. What's the first thing he did? He acknowledged that God exists, right? For anything to be resolved, we have to acknowledge that God's a part of it. Is God a part of your life or not? If he's not a part of your life, then the psalm ends right there. But not only did he realize that God did exist, but he moved it from knowing that God existed here to God exists here. It's one thing to say you believe in God, but it's quite another to say that he's my, my God. For something to be yours, you take possession of it. When you come to know Jesus, you take possession of the relationship. It's your relationship. It's not your parents. Not your grandparents, it's not your friends, it's now your relationship. When you get married, well, I'm not sure how it works in everybody else's family, but the Bible says leave and cleave, right? When you get married, you now leave your parents and you have that relationship. I remember a friend of mine, when they got married, the, the mother said to the son, from now on, your first allegiance is to your wife. Not to me. When you have a relationship, it's your relationship. It's not your parents' relationship. It's not your grandparents or even your friends. It's your relationship. And if you don't have that relationship, then you don't know God. You're learning from God from somebody else who has that relationship. And no matter how much you try, you'll never get to understand the relationship until you are in it. And David realized that even though he blew it as a parent, he still had the relationship. How many are glad that every time you sin doesn't break the relationship? Right? The Bible says, this is a paraphrase, that there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more, nothing you can do to make him love you any less. He loves you the same. Regardless of how you sin, how you blow it. And I've said this before many times, that it's amazing that God saves us. It's one thing to be forgiven of your past sins. But it's quite another for no, to realize that God knows everything you're going to do from that point forward. All the things you're going to blow from here till you die. And he still saved you. That, that encourages me because every time I mess up, I know, oh, God already knew I was going to do it. And he still, he still wanted me, so I guess I'm good. Verse 1 continues and says, I earnestly search for you. Part of any relationship is seeking to spend time with the person in the relationship, right? You adjust your schedules. You sometimes sacrifice your desires in order to spend time with your spouse 
or your families. You make it a conscious choice to search and spend time with them. Another thing we were talking about with the teens today. So we have to choose to, you know, or what is your time worth? What is your time worth? And I told them, for me, my example was I used to do all, all my own car work. Whatever needed to be done, I did it. I didn't want to pay anybody to do it. I spent the time doing it. Well, as you get older, you realize that the time you spend doing that takes away time from other things that may be more important. So I now pay somebody <laughs> to do the work to allow me to have the time to do more important things. What's your time worth? Do you earnestly search for that relationship? Do you earnestly seek relationship with your spouse or your families? And David's specifically saying, I earnestly search for that relationship with you. You can't have a relationship with someone if you don't spend any time with them. God shouldn't be the last thing we think of when everything else is done. Imagine if your families gave you the last five minutes of their day just before they went to bed. Do we treat God that way sometimes? Just before I go to bed, Lord, I'm going to put my five minutes in, talk, then I'm going to sleep. There's a phrase that says, um, how's it go? God should be our first ascent, first resort rather than our last resort. God should be first in our lives all the time. And the only way to do that is to continue to seek him. One of the things that the marriage guy was talking about with the guys was continuing to spend time with your wife, spend time, quality time. Send the kids to bed time. Now remember where David was. He is in the desert wilderness. Not exactly the Hilton, right? He could have started out asking God for food, for a bed, maybe shelter. Rather than asking for things, even necessities, he first sought God. Verse 1 continues and says, My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. What was his deepest desire? It was a spiritual desire, not a physical one, not a physical need. We all know that he needs food and water. We all need food and water. We all need the necessities of life. But more than that, we need to first have a relationship with God. If we have that relationship and we seek God first, what's Matthew tell us in 631? It says, to do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for material things. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The attitude David exhibits here isn't something that he, he gins up at the moment. It's not something that he hasn't had a relationship and he, now he starts praying real hard. He's had this relationship. He's built it up. He's constantly seeking God. So when he is in the moment of need, it's not something that's new to him. 
He knows God. He has that relationship. And he's learned over time that God is faithful. You know, one of the things about being a Christian in a while, you get to see how God has been faithful to you over the years. How many have prayed for things and are thankful that God at that time said no? And you, now you can see why God said no as opposed to being upset that God said no at the time. When you look back and it's, it's, it's good to keep, how many, of you, how many journal here? How many keep a journal or diary? Nobody? Oh, one. What that does is that helps you to remember what God has done over the years because we forget. And sometimes what we think is just normal is really God's blessing and we kind of second, second guess that or we discount it. Did God heal you from something 20 years ago? Is God the same today as he was then? Did God do something in your life 20 years ago? Well, God's the same today. The more you recognize and remember these things, the easier it is to believe for something that God's going to do today. So when David comes to God, it wasn't something that he hadn't done for a long time. It was a habit that he learned over time. And this was nothing new, coming to God, seeking him out. Now, how do we know that David felt this way? Because he relates his past experiences with God in verse 2. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. That was one of our songs today, right? We want your glory, we want your power. He has seen the power of God in his past dealings. Things that God has done in his life over time is still in his memory. Spending time worshiping on his own, he has seen God moving in miraculous ways. Now, it's one thing to worship here, and it's great, we love worshiping here, but how many of you worship by yourself? Because David, at the time, he was not allowed to be in the inner the holy of holies, right? He wasn't allowed. He wasn't allowed. The priest had to go in there once a year. So when he worshiped, it was outside of the tabernacle on his own. It's okay to worship here. We want to worship as a group. But do we spend time worshiping and developing that relationship outside of here? David had seen the power of God in the past. If you feel like you're in the desert, are you able to look back and see where God has already worked in your life? Sometimes we need God to bring those memories back that God's done. Lord, bring back what happened 20, 30 years ago, maybe five years ago, maybe last week. David came as close as he could to the tabernacle. And when he did, he saw God's power and glory when he was by himself. It's our regular worship that prepares us for the crisis that comes our way. You can't expect to have God's peace and confidence if you never spend time worshiping God. If you don't have any relationship and you never spend time in God's word or worshiping or singing, whatever it might be, and all of a sudden something hard comes up, it's going to be very hard to get a peace at that moment because you don't have that relationship. We all want to jump in and start praying a little bit harder, but it doesn't come as quickly as someone who has the relationship on a continuing basis. You can't expect to have God's peace at a moment's notice if you don't spend time with him. Our past experiences with the power and glory of God prepares us for what lies ahead. 
Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. I think Swindoll says, life is 5% of what happens to you, 95% of how you react to something that happened to you. Do you have a love for God in you? Do we have a storehouse of memories and knowledge of God's word for which we can look back onto? Now, David didn't live in the past. Can't live in the past. But he used the past experiences to help him get through current situations. If we experience the love and power and glory of God in here, why don't we think we can experience it somewhere else? Rick's testimony of meeting someone in Burger King. You know, I I read a statistic once that says, and I think it was either Billy Graham or an evangelist, saying something to the effect that more people come to Christ through one-on-one evangelism than they do with big tent meetings. Because everyone comes in big tent meetings and they all come to the front and they asked Billy Graham once, what do you think when you see all these people up front getting saved? His response was, well, I know that in a year from now, three-fourths of them won't be serving God. <coughs> Parable of the sower and the seed, right? People come up for an emotional response and, and God saves them. One-fourth of them, the word lands on good soil. Three-fourths of them, the enemy takes it away. But when you have a one-on-one relationship and you're able to minister one-on-one, that does more to bring in the kingdom of God than the big tent meetings. How many remember D. James Kennedy? He used to, had a radio show, it was great. I used to listen to him all the time. But he was the author of this thing called Evangelism Explosion, if you remember that from years ago. And his, his thing was geared towards one-on-one evangelism. And he used a chess or a checkerboard. And we've probably seen this before. He says, put one seed or a coin on the first one and double it for every square after that. So you have one, two, four, eight, 16. He says, by the time you get to the end of the checkerboard, you can't fit them all on the board. He says, that's the power of one-on-one evangelism. You minister to one, that person ministers to somebody else, now you have two. Those two minister to somebody else, now you have four. That's the power of individual evangelism. That's the power that David experienced in his life because he had a relationship, not a ritual. David saw what happened in the temple. David saw what happened in corporate time, and he trusted him that God can do the same thing when he's by himself in the desert. If you're going through the desert, the same God that's able to minister to here is ministering there. Verses 3 and 4 says, Your unfailing love is better to me than life itself. How I praise you. I will honor you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. Notice David did not complain about his situation. Could have. How many of us complain about situations we're in? Rather than complaining, he spent time worshiping. Now remember, David had already been busted by Nathan, right? The Bathsheba thing happened. He killed Uriah. Nathan came in and knocked him out with the emotional word story. 
And now, even though he did all these things, what does he say? Your unfailing love to me is better than life. When you compare David's sins to Saul's sins, they were worse than Saul's sins. He killed somebody. Saul never killed anybody. He tried to. But the difference was David asked for forgiveness and received it. And the Bible says that God chooses to forget our sins. How many, how many are glad for that? God chooses to forget because of his unfailing love. So David can say from his heart that he knew that, God, your unfailing love to me. Because you forgave me of this terrible sin. Man, I know you love me. Now, none of us may have killed anybody. But the same grace that was poured on David, Psalm 51, is the same grace that we've all received. Because all of our sins are the same. The Bible says if you break one law, you might as well break them all. And so each one of us deserved the same thing that David deserved, which was death. But God forgave us just like he forgave David, and David knew it. He had firsthand experience of God's forgiveness. I wrote down here, how many horrible things have we done in our past? Have we asked God to forgive them? And I guess a better question is, have you received the forgiveness? Or do you still walk around feeling guilty? It's not a question of whether God forgave you. It's a question of have you forgiven yourself? Has God extended his grace and love to you? Each one of us, we're someone who was not worthy of that. But just like David, we received it anyways. One of the first verses I memorized was Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by what? Sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. It's not like we cleaned up our act and God died. It's when we were at our worst that Jesus still saw something in us and died. That's the same thing that David experienced, that even though David committed this horrible sin, man, he knew God forgave him, and he realized that was the love of God in his life. Luke 7, 47 says, I tell you, her sins, though they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Now, we're all probably pretty good people. But we have to really understand the severity of sin. That the littlest sin is still worthy of death. How many understand that? And even though we may have not killed someone or had an affair or anything like that, our sins are equally a stench in God's eyes or nostrils as David's. And we have to understand that we have been forgiven much. David had been forgiven a lot. And sometimes we have the, the think, thinking that, well, I was a pretty good person before I got saved. We don't realize how much grace has been poured upon us when we think that we're pretty good. When we're not. So all of us should love much because we've all been forgiven much even though the world may not think it's a lot. David had been forgiven of his sins so what was the natural reaction of understanding forgiveness? He wanted to praise God. He wanted to thank God for that. 
He wanted to lift his hands in prayer and worship. And what was the end results of David's worship and prayer? Verse 5 says, You satisfy me more than the richest of foods. I will praise you with songs of joy. God gives a contentment and a peace and a satisfaction in your life that is unexplainable. I think Jamie mentioned it this morning during worship. The world can't understand why we have peace in certain situations. David equates it with something we can all relate to. Remember, he's in the desert. Probably not a lot of food. Not a lot of water. One of the gentlemen, the speakers of the conference said he, he put himself on a fast for 40 days with just water. Can you imagine that? Now, this guy lost a lot of weight, but at the end of the 40 days, if someone said to you, let's go to Shady Maple, what are you thinking? They're going to lose money on me. Well, David's saying, even more than that, just God's presence satisfies me more than a buffet at Shady Maple. God's presence is better than the food he really wanted at that particular moment. Because food only satisfies for a while, right? And some food satisfies longer than others. Some you walk home and three hours later you're starved again. God's presence satisfies all the time. And because of that, you have contentment, satisfaction, peace, and what's the result of having all those three? You have joy. Even though the situation around you hasn't changed, God's presence has given you that joy because you don't depend on what's happening to you. And you don't depend on what, where you are at any particular moment in your life. All that comes from not where you are or what's happening. The joy, peace, contentment comes from a relationship with Christ. Psalm 63 verse 6 says, I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. You ever have nights where you can't sleep? Things going on in your life, something's coming up the next day. Tyler's taking his test in a day or so, he's not going to sleep the night before. But God says he can give you peace and allow you a good night's sleep even though all this is happening to you. David was calm, lying in bed, just thinking about the goodness of God. You think about that when things are going wrong? Laying in bed at night instead of concentrating on all the issues, concentrate on the goodness of God. The Bible says you'll have a great night's sleep. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. We said this morning, cast them on God and leave them there. Can't take them back. You've got to leave them. And once you give them to God, they're okay. My, my white van, I came out the other day and wouldn't start. Again. So I had it towed down to Kia and they're fixing it. You know what? Normally I would have been like freaking out. But I gave it to God. And I gave it to Kia <laughs> to fix. So I didn't stress about, oh, having to get underneath the car and fixing it and doing all this stuff. I gave it to them. It's their worry. And they're going to fix it. And they did. And I got it back. When you cast your stuff on Jesus... You got to leave it there. You're not going to fix it. He's going to fix it. And no matter what you do, 
You're not going to change anything. Only God can change the situation. So what's the Bible say? Why worry about that? It won't increase your height. It won't give you another day of rest. You've got to give it to God. Psalm 63 verse 7 says, I think how much you have helped me. I sing for joy in the shadow of your protecting wings. Rather than lying in bed worrying about David's problems, he thought about what God had done for him in the past. To bolster his faith, to trust God for what he's going to do now. What's God done for you in the past? If he did it then, is he not able to take care of you now? Sometimes we forget what God's done. But the Bible countless times refers to God as our shelter, our fortress, a high tower. All of those are images of what? Protection. How many, I guess we had like a little mini storm last night. How many? I was over at Taylor's babysitting. They live in a mobile home. I've never been in a mobile home during a storm like that. And man, you, you thought there was an earthquake right underneath the trailer. The trees banging inside the trailer and everything's making noise. I'm thinking, it's, you know, the rapture's happening, man. I'm done. But I was glad I was in a trailer. I was glad I was not outside for that. And I walked into the back in the back bedroom and it was quiet in there. All the wind was coming from the front. And I thought, when there's a storm going on outside around your life, you're in God's house. You're in God's shelter. He's going to shelter you from the storm that's outside if we let him. That's why the Bible refers to God as our shelter, our fortress, high tower. God protects his children. And because we can be confident about his protection, we can be joyful. Verse 8 says, I follow close behind you. Your strong hands hold me securely. I thought of a picture of a dad holding a little child walking across the street. Now the dad holds that kid's hand really tight because you don't want that kid running out in the middle of traffic. He walks generally a little bit ahead of them. He makes sure there's nothing coming. And he walks and he walks them across the street. That's what God does. He grabs your hands. He looks to make sure everything's okay. And he carries you. He says, your strong right hand holds me securely. Isaiah 43, 2, we said it this morning. When you go through deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. How many of you with little kids, your kids want to sleep with you at night? Yeah. Nothing's different. The same monsters are under the bed, in the cupboard, whatever. They're all still there. What's the difference? They're with you. Your presence allows them to sleep peacefully. God's presence allows you to sleep peacefully with all the same situations going on around you. Nothing has changed for your kids except the difference is you're there. David knew that God was there for him, even in the wilderness. He learned through past experiences 
that God was his protector and his father? What have we learned through life that encourages us? What little things, what big things has God done for you in the past? If you trust God completely, then his presence will allay your fears and hurts. If you feel you're in the wilderness now, there's no one around you. Take time to worship God. Remember what he's already done for you. Remember what he's already done around you. Once you do that, that's when the peace comes. When you just give it to God and worship him in spite of the fact that nothing's changed other than you've given that to the Lord. Would you stand as we close this morning? See, I am early. Ten minutes. But the prayer could last ten minutes, so, you know. Every head bowed, every eye closed, if you would. Maybe you're here this morning, you've been a a part of our church for a long time, or maybe this is your very first time here, or anywhere in between. The reason that we exist as a church is to bring people into a relationship with Christ, to introduce you to the, the best friend we've ever had, the one who helps us through every struggle, every situation. If you don't know Christ and you realize that you're, you're a sinner, you've done things in your past just like we've all done, and you need to ask for forgiveness for those from, from the Lord, from the God of the universe. The price has already been paid for those sins. The difference is we have to accept it. The key to the jail that you're living in is right in front of you. But if you don't pick it up and open the door, you're still stuck in jail. Jesus is the key. When you come to Christ and ask for forgiveness, the Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. If you don't know Jesus and you're worried about what's going to happen to you when you die or you want the peace of Christ that each one of us experience on a daily basis, if you want that, I want you to raise your hand right now. You're not here by accident. You're here because God has directed you to be here for some reason. Something that was said or heard or done, God wanted you to hear or see or experience. All right, I'm going to assume that all of us are devoted followers of Christ. And even as devoted followers of Christ, we all go through situations where we need God to intervene. And we need God to give us the peace. We need God to give us the assurance. David was still in the wilderness at the end of the psalm. But he loved God and he trusted God through it all. If you're in that situation now and your trust in God is kind of waning, this is the time to just give it to him, to leave it, not take it back, not think God's not working fast enough and take it back to fix it yourself. We give it to God and leave it. I'm going to pray that each of us do that today. Father, thank you that your word is true, your promises are true, 
the experiences that we read in your word are true experiences happening to real people in real time. And your word says that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the things that you did for David all those centuries ago are the things that you can do for us today. I pray for each person here that, God, you would fill them with your spirit. Allow them to have the faith and trust to leave their situations at your feet, whatever they might be. Your word says that you are our healer. You're our provider. You're our banner. You're our shelter. You are everything we need. Your word says that you are everything we need for life and godliness. Life being first. So, Lord, I pray that you would meet the need upon every heart here this morning. Allow them to really experience the power and presence of Christ, not just here, but on a daily basis. When the struggles come and the hard times come, let them have peace. Let them even have joy because they know that their Father is able to handle it. And help us to leave it with you to handle in your time and in your way. When we're able to do that, we will walk in victory and peace. Now, Lord, I pray you bless us as we leave today. Encourage us. Allow us to experience your presence every day. And we will trust you for great things. As we heard testimonies today, we believe there's testimonies yet to come of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. If you're a uh, voting member, please hang around for a moment. It'll be, like I said, five minutes. We'll be out of here. I appreciate it.